Turn to me, uh, turn if you would with me to 1 John. We're going to pick up in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Let's stand together as we hear God's word. John writes and he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, that they all are not of us. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have You all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, now, because you love us, because you've never stopped advocating for us through your Son, Jesus, do only that which you can do through your word. It may go from my mouth to these ears, but we need the Spirit to take it from our ears to our hearts so that we would believe, so that we would repent, so that we would walk in humble obedience. So do this, we pray, for the glory and the sake of King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Be seated. As a preacher, I'm always, always on the lookout 
for new material. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I'm trying to find things other than the Bible. It means that in terms of things that can illustrate what the Bible teaches and what the Bible talks about. One such illustration happened to show up a couple weeks ago. Many of you know that now there's smart digital assistants that are now trying to infiltrate every part of our home, and there's a, there's a brand war. If you're a, if you're a fruit company person, then, then Siri's your go-to gal. If you happen to like the empire that Mr. Bezos is making, Alexa is who you want in your home. Or if you're more comfortable with the omnipresence of Google, then the Google Assistant in your home is what you're looking for. But it was interesting, a couple weeks ago, it got out on the interwebs, as these things do, that there was a deficiency in Google's knowledge. If you said, hey, Google, who is Allah? Google would go and do some research and tell you who Allah is. You could ask the same question of Muhammad. You could ask the same question of Buddha. You could ask the same question, well, you could almost ask the same question. If you ask Google who Jesus is, couldn't give you an answer. If you asked Google who Jesus Christ was, it couldn't give you an answer. Oh, and this was picked up by everyone. They're, they're all like, look, isn't it great? See? It's a conspiracy by the liberals. They suppress the truth. I was like, well, that's interesting. That's a, that's a sermon illustration. And then it got ruined because Google came out with a statement about why this was happening. That's what they said. The reason the Google Assistant didn't respond with information about who is Jesus or who is Jesus Christ wasn't out of disrespect, but instead to ensure respect. Some of the assistant's spoken responses come from the web, and for certain topics, this content can be more vulnerable to vandalism and spam. If our systems detect such circumstances, the assistant might not reply. If similar vulnerabilities were detected for other questions, including about other religious leaders, the assistant also wouldn't respond then either. Google said, we're exploring different solutions and temporarily disabling these responses for religious figures in the assistant. I said, that's fascinating because it all of a sudden went from one sermon illustration to another one. How is it that Google figured out that the truth about who Jesus is is so easily messed with that they ought to be careful. 
Because it's been a thing, hasn't it? Ever since Jesus walked the earth. Everybody has been adding to or taking away from what Jesus did and who Jesus was. Now, I have to make a confession to you. Preaching that ends up being a bunch of them out there finger-pointing bothers me. Let me tell you why it bothers me. It doesn't bother me because I don't think there are problems in the world. There are. There are a lot of problems in the world. And it doesn't bother me because I don't think there are things that should be condemned about the, the, the practices and the, um, and the values and the priorities of the world because I think there are things that are really messed up. Here's what ultimately bothers me. You and I were not brought here this day providentially by God in order to feel better about ourselves and to feel triumphant about them out there. God, because he loves you, and God, because he loves me, is, is this day desiring to do a work in us, to make us um, aware of our sin, aware of our need, and see Jesus and him only as our hope and our help. That's what we're here to be. We're here to be God's people. We're here to be, um, we're here to be uh, deconstructed and remade more and more in the image and likeness of Jesus. So one of the things that I had to wrestle with in this text is how do you make how do you make this text applicable to us? Because it sounds like John's talking about them out there, doesn't it? Then I realized. I realized that in these first couple of verses, John's talking about what I do almost every day. I add to and I take away from what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And I bet maybe you do too. So two ideas. How are we deceived? And how do we abide? How are we deceived? How do we abide? He starts out and says, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So the last days, I know that this is uh, familiar to some of you, but it may not be for others. <clears throat> when the Bible talks about the last days, we're not talking about this yet-to-come 
slice of time when things are going to get really bad and really ugly. When the Bible talks about these last days, the Bible is talking about everything that's happened between the time of the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost to the time when Jesus returns again. That is what it means when it says, in the last days. We are living in the last days right now. We've been living in the last days since Pentecost, we will continue living in the last days until Jesus and the Father finally say, it's enough. This word antichrist, do you know how many times the word antichrist appears in the New Testament? Four times. Do you know where they appear? Right here. This is it. All the times the New Testament mentions Antichrist. It's all here in 1 John. So John defines this a little bit further, but he does it over in his second letter. In 2 John verse 7, this is what he is talking about when he talks about deception. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Listen to what he says. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So these false teachers have gone out into the world claiming that Jesus was not the Christ, the promised one. He was not God in the flesh. Um, The heresy of Gnosticism, this thing that said that, that flesh is bad and spirit is good stated that since flesh was bad, Jesus could not have been God because Jesus, after all, came in the flesh. But this is what John knew. John knew that Jesus had to be God in the flesh. Jesus had to be human so that he could be that, that, that word that we used a few weeks ago, propitiation, so that Jesus could be the acceptable, the suitable sacrifice, the suitable substitute for sin. He had to be God in order to pay the infinite debt of sin. Beloved, I'm a self-deceiver, and you are too. Because every day we functionally live as if Jesus didn't have to come in the flesh to save us of our sins, but it was nice that he did, right? We live as if, wow, that's really good for those really awful days that I have. But today I'm good. We're deceptors. We're self-deceivers. We make more or less of who Jesus is. What happens when you make more? Well, It's good that I believe the gospel. That's great. But I better get my theology in line too. And I better read the right books. And I better listen to the right things. And I better vote for the right people. And I better do all these other things. If I'm truly going to be a follower of Jesus. We start adding to and making more of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We become self-deceivers. The thing that I asked the Sunday school class as we 
um, finished our time together this morning. We're talking about the, the authority of God's word. We're talking about the centrality of God's word. And I asked the question and I said, don't answer it now. We'll talk about it more next week. Here was the question. I said, who or what is the functional authority in your life? When it comes to making decisions, when it comes to ordering your life, when it comes to ordering your loves, who or what is the functional authority in your life? Now, don't tell anyone in the class that I told you this. (laughs) But we're self-deceivers. And every day, the answer may change in terms of what has become the functional authority in my life. So John said, there's going to be a lot of these people that are going to come. There's going to be a lot of these people that are going to come, and they're going to try, and they're going to add to or take away from the gospel, and they're going to try and deceive people and move them away from the truth. Kevin and I were talking um, last week. There's uh, been a reboot of The X-Files. Now, if you watched The X-Files... Mulder and Scully and everybody else back in the night. I didn't watch it. I like to sleep. And I don't deal well with, with things that cause me not to sleep. That's why I watch cooking shows. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and the end. Nobody jumps out and scares you, and there's delicious food to look at. The fundamental thing that the the whole print what was the remember do you remember the tagline that the X Files was built on the whole during its whole run back in the nineties? The truth is out there. They have a marketing problem now, don't they? <laughs> the show has had to do what we call in the business a pivot. Now they're playing on the idea that all sorts of truths are out there. falsehood lies wait in plain sight and no one knows any better. It's a brilliant move, isn't it? It's a brilliant move. John said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, to say that the... um, that the truth is out there was such an antiquated idea, isn't it? Now, truth is everyone's game. It's up for grabs across the board. And it happens in the familiar ways. Well, whether you believe in Allah or believe in Buddha, it's all the same God at all. It all kind of works out there at the end. That's been the, that's been the way that we've uh, kind of denied truth. What's the more recent one? Well, That's your interpretation of that. As if to say what? As if to say there is not a firm, concrete, objective, knowable truth that can be arrived at. Well, that's just your interpretation. Eugene Peterson in his book, Traveling Light, Reflections on the Free Life, says this. He says, our age has developed a kind of loose geniality about what people say they believe. He says, we're especially tolerant in matters of religion. Now, Peterson wrote this uh, many years ago. It's amazing how well this has aged. He says, we are especially tolerant in matters of religion. 
But, he says, much of the vaunted tolerance that we have is not actually tolerance at all. It's indifference. We don't care because we don't think that it matters. But by tolerance, he says, disappears quickly if a person's belief interferes with my life. I'm not tolerant of of persons who believe that they have as much right to my possessions as I do and then proceed to help themselves. And John, John's not tolerant when people he loves are being told lies about God because he knows that such lies will reduce their lives, impair the vitality of their spirits, imprison them in old guilts, and cripple them with anxieties and fears. Why does truth matter? Because untruth is destructive. That's why it matters. And that's why John is saying, they left us. Truth is always going to have a way of finding out error. Truth doesn't have to be a weapon, right? Say say that with me. Truth doesn't have to be a weapon. You can be right and be gentle. But neither is truth on the table as a bargaining chip either. Truth is truth. Sam Kistemacher says that believers belong and deniers depart. Those who ultimately um, hold to false teaching and false truth and peddle in it will ultimately leave. Um, And this isn't to say that every time someone has left the church, it's because they've been practicing untruth, right? Division in the church is sad. But here, what we see is that division will ultimately happen when truth and error are standing in opposition to one another. Truth and error will always happen. Which is why sometimes compromising or agreeing to disagree just doesn't work. And that's why it's important for us to talk about what, it, um, what are the things that we divide over? What are the things that we say we can, we, can have, um, we can have charity with one another, but we will never have unity if we don't have unity around these things? And beloved, I'm going to tell you, when you start playing with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you get into all sorts of dangerous water. As one author put it, he said, we shouldn't grieve when wolves come in and steal other wolves. True sheep abide with the good shepherd. So if deception, how how we get deceived is when something else becomes the functional authority of our life. When When we remove ourselves from the authority of scripture, when we remove ourselves from the, uh, from the testimony of the Spirit, when we remove ourselves from being in conversation and in concert with uh, those who have spoken before and those who are speaking presently, when we become authorities unto ourselves, we are setting ourselves up to be deceived. So how do we avoid that? That's what John gets into now. He says, but you, verse 20, 
have been anointed with the Holy One, and you, have, uh, you all have knowledge. He says, I write you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is in the truth. So listen to this. We abide in Christ, the anointed one, by means of our anointing. You with me? We abide in Christ, the anointed one, by the means of our anointing. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism in the 32nd question and answer says. It says, so why are you called a Christian? Listen to the answer. Because by faith, I am a member of Christ, right? This union with Christ. I'm a member of Christ. And thus, a partaker of his anointing in order that I also may confess his name, may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and may with free conscience fight against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter in eternity reign with him over all creatures. Now the word anointing in the Bible has had uh, different contemporary meanings, hasn't it? We typically think of anointing as, um, as an expressive quality, right? That person was really anointed. There was a special anointing in what they said, right? It tends to be lumped over with expressive or charismatic qualities. Is that what John means here? I don't think it is. I think what John is talking about here is, a, is an internal quality. The word anointed in the Bible refers to someone who has been set apart for a special purpose, right? Someone who has been anointed is someone who has been set apart for a special purpose. So, so what would it mean then to say that God's people have been anointed by God's Spirit? They've been set apart for a purpose by God's Spirit. So the Spirit, verse 20, is at work confirming truth. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So this means that as a Christian, then, you have been anointed by the Spirit of God. This is not something that comes as a, as a special bonus feature that you unlock at the end of the DVD. This is not something that you pay money for and get as an add-on or an optional upgrade. This is what is true for every Christian. You have been anointed by, you have been baptized by the Spirit of God. And so that is a part of your life. God has been at work. He has anointed you. He has done a work deep down inside of you, uniting you with Christ and powerfully at work in you through his Spirit. And it's that Spirit that John says is at work in you confirming truth. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22 uh, Paul says this, he says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In other words, um, what John is speaking of here uh, is not some sort of uh, expressive personality, some sort of outward manifestation that you are an anointed person, um, but rather an internal reality. Uh, similar, down in verse 24, what we see this. In, in verse 24, John says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Um, 
This command to let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Uh, Truth has come in your ears, but it is only the spirit that can take the truth of God and drive it down from your ears to your heart. Um, so what he says is, um, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is how we are kept in the truth and defended from falsehood. We have external defenses and internal defenses. So when you think about external defenses... External defenses are regularly using creeds and confessions. Now, I know um, it's, uh, I'm jumping ahead because I'm teaching a thing on sola scriptura. We need scripture alone. This was a whole thing and a part of the Protestant church of we don't need any creed but the Bible. And that got weird because then ancient heresies that had been re- repudiated by creeds started working their way back into the church. And then, you know, church historians are just you know, having a moment. Um, The creeds don't replace the scriptures. The creeds are only true insofar as they point to what's in the scriptures. You see? Making regular use of of these external defenses of the word of God, the creeds and confessions, all the things that give us um, the, the, the mooring pins so that we can defend ourselves when truth has been put askew when things are coming at us that aren't quite right. See, this is how, this is how falsehood creeps in. Falsehood creeps in in one of two ways, either because of error, someone made a mistake or by deception, someone's trying to tell you something that really isn't true. The way that falsehood gets past your defenses is it sounds true enough. Okay. So I had a professor in seminary, um, whose exams were, They were, they're the reason that I probably have nightmares today, honestly. (laughs) They were multiple choice, matching, and true-false. They were impossible. Here's how he would say, uh, when we were doing philosophy, he would say, Erasmus said A, B, C, D, E. You would have to know exactly what Erasmus said because there would only be a word different between A and B and C and D. Always or sometimes or early on in his life. Because that's how he gets you, right? All of the answers sound plausible. Do you know how falsehood creeps in? It sounds plausible. It's not outright falsehood. It sounds true enough. And so part of the way that we defend ourselves from falsehood creeping in is to be very precise about the words that we use, very precise about the truth that we proclaim, and very regimented about making sure that we're constantly abiding in truth. These are the external defenses. especially important. We're coming into a season of Lent, which means we're coming close to Easter, which means that once again, there's going to be the smiling cadre of professionals and scholars that will come and make their rounds on the cable news networks in order to talk about their most recent book that fundamentally finally disproves this or that or whatever, or it says that Jesus didn't do this or did do that or whatever else. The way we protect ourselves 
is by abiding. We abide by abiding in the word of God. We abide through the internal defense that we have, the internal defense mechanism. And this is what John's referring to here. There is, a, there is within us the spirit of the Christ that bears witness to him. Now, before you go saying that uh, verse 27 now means we don't have to have a preacher any longer, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So let me just say this in defense of what I do. How many Jesuses, the Christs, the Son of God, were there in the world? Good, thank you for answering one. That was going to be a whole side sermon that we were going to have to have there. So with the Spirit of Christ, how is that Spirit at work among us? Do all of us have everything that we need? No, we need one another. In fact, there are some that God has gifted as teachers and preachers. Our, the spirit of God at work in me is at work with the spirit of God who is in you in a complementary way, right? This is what John's saying here. Because the spirit's at work, you don't need people to teach you new things, additional things, different things. You need to hear and be grounded in the one true thing about Jesus. Our union with Jesus has given us a new mind and a new heart, one that loves and hears and recognizes truth. It's the spirit that dwells within us that is the means through which we are able to abide in him. But to abide in him does not mean that because I once believed everything is good. To abide in Jesus, rather, is to continue to believe. Perseverance is that I have believed and I was changed. I am believing and I am being changed. And I will continue to believe and continue to be changed. This is what it means to persevere. This is what it means to be once saved, always saved saved. It doesn't mean that I said something that seemed vaguely spiritual and meaningful some years ago, and now I'm fine to live my life as I choose. What it means to be saying, once saved and always saved, what it means to say, I persevere, what it means to say, I abide in Jesus, is that I have been saved, I am being saved, I will continue to be saved, I have been changed, I am being changed, and I will continue to be changed until the day when grace is met with glory. John Stott says, future and final perseverance is the ultimate test of genuine participation in the life of Christ. Persevering in truth, abiding in Christ through the means of our anointing is in the Holy Spirit is a battle. So to ask that question, who is your functional authority, is a daily diagnostic question. It's not a rhetorical question. It's not a gotcha question. It's what's operating as my final authority right now. In what am I hoping? In what am I abiding? Because I am a class A self-deceiver, and you are too. Many of us want to find the secret weapon, the conference to go to, the silver bullet, the, the perfect memory verse that's going to make our lives free from this struggle. Um, but there is no such shortcut. It doesn't exist. It's only... Um, 
only abiding in Jesus. It's only um, recognizing that from new birth to new earth, that we are locked in a daily, moment-by-moment war with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and as such, must continually be on guard because I'm a class A self-deceiver. And you are too. So how do we remain? How do we abide? We do so because God is faithful. Um, It's a real thing to say that the Spirit is at work in you. It's a real thing to say that God has has pledged himself to you, that his never stopping, never giving up, unfailing, always and forever love is a real love for you. And and because he has set his love on you and because he has set his spirit on you and because he has said, I will never let you go, we can trust in that. But that also means that we have to look at all the other things that are gonna try and masquerade as truth in our lives. Believers belong and deceivers depart. So what needs to depart your life? What needs to depart? What's the thing that's giving you that's giving you a narrative that sounds almost true but isn't? What's the thing that's your functional authority? Here's the good news. When the enemy came and tried to deceive Jesus as he was tempted in the desert over those 40 days, command that rock. Command those angels. Take the world. He wasn't deceived. And he didn't fail. So even when you and I do, we have one who didn't. And he's given us his record and his robe and his righteousness. Therefore, Christian, back into the fray. Go to battle. The battle belongs to the Lord.